And if you're visiting with us this morning, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we find ourselves in John's Gospel, chapter 8. Been in John a little while, sometimes we're over in Luke or Matthew or Mark, just jumping around, and, uh, but been here, and I think wonderfully so. And uh, the passage that we look at this morning is just one of the most important things that Jesus said, and uh, very, very well known. In fact, the culture has kind of absorbed it as a saying, but it has its origin in him. Chapter 8, verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you'll be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask and we're appreciative, first of all, Lord, for a time of worship together this morning. And to be able to have our gaze in this fallen world lifted off of all of the nine-foot-plus Goliaths that are all around us, the problems that are a part of our lives individually and personally and nationally and worldwide, and to have our eyes fixed upon you. And Lord, we thank you that you rule over this universe, you rule over this world, not to say that every decision that occurs here is your decision, but you rule and overrule everything toward your plan. And we rest in that. We pray, Lord, and, and really set aside our disgust in order to do it. But we pray for these elected officials that are trying to put a plan together today in Washington in order to salvage some very great damage to our economy. And we realize it's more than dollars and cents, but food on the table for many people hanging in the balance. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom that you would overrule that and guide that toward the end that you want it to have in this country and that this country would be in its place for whatever purpose, Lord, in these last days for you to move it the way that you want to as you march human events toward its inevitable end and then giving way, Lord, to the glorious thing that you have planned. Thank you, Lord, that we... Like Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, <laughs> and his train filled the temple. And so we just acknowledge you on the throne. And Lord, we thank you so much for that perspective and that reality in our lives. We pray that you'd bless our time in your word today, this word that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. We pray that you would give it a permanent and eternal place in each one of our hearts and minds today. Pray, Lord, for those that don't know you, that stand before you right now, that today would be the day that they would surrender to you and enter into the life that you have planned for them. We ask all of these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus teaches us how to enjoy a life of true freedom. And I think that freedom is a, 
powerful word and it's a powerful reality. I don't know that anyone can supply a real freedom except for Jesus himself, but we live in a very addicted world. We live in a world that is in bondage to a lot of things. And so I trust that when we come to a passage that talks about freedom and uh, freedom, you know, true freedom, that it really does excite our hearts, that there's hope for us to be able to experience that. Jesus, the context of what's happening here is the same context that we've looked at in the recent two or three weeks. Jesus is in the court of the women in the area of the temple in Jerusalem immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. And while he was teaching there in that court, his teaching was interrupted by a group of religious leaders who brought, uh, interrupted his teaching over an issue of a woman caught in the very act of adultery. And having then dealt with that particular issue, he is then challenged by some Pharisees who are part of the crowd that's listening to his teaching concerning his claims to be the Messiah and his claims to be the Son of God. And Jesus defends his claims to be the Messiah. He defends his claims to be divine very masterfully, so masterfully that a significant portion of his listeners of that Bible study in that courtyard that morning, they believed in him as the promised Messiah. And apparently some of the Pharisees who were in that audience uh, did so uh, uh, likewise. Because Jesus then speaks in verse 31, we're told there he speaks to the Jews who believed in him. Now, it's very important to understand this. I'm not making a mountain out of, of a molehill. When the Holy Spirit tells us that Jesus spoke these things, right here that we're studying today and we'll be studying at least next week, when he spoke those things to the Jews, it doesn't mean that Jesus, that, that the Holy Spirit is speaking here of just Jews in general. It would, it, otherwise it would be a very odd statement that then Jesus said to those Jews. Everyone in his audience was a Jew. You couldn't be a Jew. You couldn't be in the court of the women without being a Jew. So they're all Jews. So it's an odd thing to say in, in the light of, uh, of that. And, and so... Uh, in John's Gospel, though, it's interesting from one end to the other. He makes a habit of using the term the Jews, not to refer to the Jewish people in general, but to refer to the Jewish religious leaders. And so here Jesus is speaking specifically to the Jewish religious leaders in the audience who have professed a faith in him. He's not talking to the larger crowd who has done that. And so when we read this week and we read especially next week that Jesus gets in this discussion between him and the Jews, we need to know he's talking to the Jewish religious leaders who are very opposed to him. Otherwise, if he's just talking to Jewish people or who are new believers and later in the chapter he says, you're of your father the devil, I mean, our eyes would go like this and say, what kind of a new believers class is this that Jesus takes people through and speaks to them this way? He's not talking to the, the regular crowd that believed in him. He's talking to these Jewish religious leaders. And the truth that he speaks here applies not only to them, but it applies to the whole world and to all of us in this room this morning. Now notice in verse 31, 
that Jesus speaks of disciples who are disciples in deed. And what he's saying is that not the only disciple who will experience this freedom that he wants us to experience is an indeed disciple. Now a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. Who, a person who voluntarily places themselves under the teaching and the leading of another person or, or of a teacher. And so here Jesus speaks to disciples who are disciples indeed. He speaks of disciples in verse 31 and 32. A non-indeed disciple is one who makes a profession of faith in Jesus. They make a verbal confession that they are going to obey him, that they are going to follow him, that they are going to uh, adhere to his teaching, they're going to make him his, their, their master, but they never do. There's plenty of those people. Jesus talks about it in his parable of the, the soils, where he talked about the second soil, which was rocky, and the seed of God's word was sown uh, among that soil. And, uh, and because the, the soil was so shallow, when the sun came out and heat came, because the seed wasn't deeply rooted in that soil or in that human heart, it quickly died away. And that's the kind of person, a non-indeed disciple of, of the Lord. And so they never learn, they profess a lot, but they never learn and they never follow. Their commitment is simply words. Now notice the characteristics of an indeed disciple that Jesus speaks about us here. And the word indeed, it means truly or it means really. So this is a true disciple, this is a really disciple. And uh, so this is the only kind of person that can know true freedom in their life. And indeed, disciple, Jesus said in verse 31, will abide in Jesus' word. He or she will abide in Jesus' teaching. And the key word to understanding this whole thing is the word abide. And the word abide there in the original language, it means to settle down and make myself at home with. The Greek word signifies that, and it really produces kind of a picture, at least it does in my mind, and in fact it, it's it, not just my mind, but in any mind. It, it, it's, a, it, it's intended to, to produce a picture. The picture that it produces in my mind is, is a, a, a late fall or a winter day where it's cold outside. And some, you know, lord of a great estate invites you over for dessert or whatever that evening. And you come in the darkness and you come out, in, out of the rain and into the uh, mansion. And there's a great fire burning in the fireplace and you're offered a hot drink. And you're able to then settle into a large chair that basically just envelops you. And they invite you in to come in and settle down and make yourself at home in, in that, that room. Make yourself completely comfortable. And that is to be our attitude, Jesus is saying, toward the Word of God. And that is to be the place that we give the Word of God 
inside of our hearts and in our lives, where we say to the Word of God as we would read it in church or where we would read it daily at home, we would say to the Word of God, you come into my heart and you settle down and you make yourself at home here. I want you to be comfortable here even if no one else is comfortable. And if while you settle down in the comfort of my heart and you settle in for the long haul, for the long stay, if there's anything in this room, if there's anything in this heart that makes you uncomfortable, you just point it out to me and I'll remove it because I want my heart to be supremely a place where your word is, is comfortable. And so it speaks of giving the word of God a deep, settled place in our lives. It's the description of a Christian who obeys the Word of God. They don't have an on-again, off-again you know, relationship with the Word of God. It's a person who gives the Word of God a deep, rich, living, obedient, day in and day out, year in and year out place in their lives. And it is the description of the child of God who has chosen to make the Word of God the single most important influence in their lives over all other voices, over all other influences. And there are a lot of voices in this culture. There's a lot of voices inside my own heart. There's voices inside of my noggin. There's voices in my neighborhood, there's voices in my family, there's voices on TV, there's voices on the radio, there are voices in print, there are voices everywhere who are endeavoring to conform me into their own image, who are endeavoring to make what they are saying the most important thing in my life. And the indeed disciple says, no, I'm going to have what the Word of God says. I'm going to have the Word of God itself be the single most influential thing in my life. Now, those are all just words. If we don't examine our lives and look and say, is that true of my life? Our freedom, even as a Christian, the, d the degree and level of freedom that we enjoy in this life, this side of heaven, it hangs in the balance in terms of the place that we give to the Word of God in our lives and how deeply we allow it to impact our lives. I love what Paul, when he wrote to the church at Colossae, and he spoke in this same vein of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the place for the Word of God. Settle down and making itself at home in a rich way in each one of our lives. Now, the second characteristic of an indeed disciple, not only do they give the word of God this place in their life, but Jesus declared that such a disciple, a disciple that gives the word of God that kind of place, gives it a deep place and then an obedient place in, in their life, that that disciple, verse 32, would know the truth. And the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is found in understanding the word no. We think of, I think very often, we tend to think of knowing as being something that is supremely intellectual. You walk into a classroom and uh, somebody does a great deal of writing on a marker board 
or lecturing and uh, the information is passed from their noggin into my noggin and now I have uh, more knowledge inside of my head than I've ever had uh, before. And uh, so we think of it as something that's supremely intellectual. And thus, we tend to think in this passage that what Jesus is saying here is if we abide in God's truth, then we're going to have an intellectual understanding of his will, and the result will be freedom. Now, that's true to a certain degree, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. And I think that you, I can... I can preach this sermon and just say this and this and this and the truth will set you free and, and not, and we walk out of here and say it'll be a, it's a lovely sermon that he gave, maybe not, but it was adequate. Uh, but then you go out and they get in the car and head out into life and there's no ability to under, it won't work without understanding what Jesus is saying here. And, and then it, it, it'll collapse out from under us and then we'll be frustrated. It doesn't work for us. So what the word that Jesus uses here in the original language, the Greek here, for to know is the word gnosko. And the word gnosko is a Greek word that every Christian needs to learn, at least a handful of Greek words. But the word gnosko means a knowledge by experience. It is a knowledge that we gain by a practical, personal experience with that truth. There's another Greek word, it's the Greek word oetis, which speaks of intuitive knowledge. It speaks of head knowledge. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a knowledge that comes by experience. In other words, Jesus is saying that when a person abides in his words, he knows the Word of God, he knows God's definitions of right and wrong, he knows the will of God by knowing the Word of God, and he then obeys the Word of God, that that person will not only come to an intellectual realization that these words are true, but that person will also gain a knowledge by experience, witness to the fact that this word is true. As we obey God's word, the quality of spiritual life that simple obedience to God's word produces will testify to the fact that it is true. This is the way we've been created to live. The quality of mental life. How many people are going crazy today? Because their minds aren't tapped into the truth. The quality of mental life that simple obedience to God's word produces will testify to the fact that it's true. This is the way we've been created to live. The quality of emotional life that simple obedience to his word produces will testify to the fact practically that this word is true. This is the way we've been created to live. The quality of even physical life that simple obedience to his word produces will testify to the fact that it's true that this is the way that we've been created to live. Think about all the sexually transmitted diseases a person avoids by simply obeying God's word. There's even a physical testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. In other words, Jesus... And Jesus' teaching can not only withstand the most rigorous 
intellectual examine, examination as to its right to be called truth. But it is able to also withstand the most rigorous practical examination as well. The truth in this Bible does not need to be hidden away in some ivory tower to be protected from the implications of itself. It doesn't have to be hidden away and hidden behind glass and kept away from the you know, demands of the nitty-gritty of life and this very fallen place called uh, earth, lest, lest it be exposed as just purely intellectual blah, 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 like so much else that goes on in the world today. This word will prove itself to be the truth in anyone, in any time, anywhere and in any circumstance that a person finds themselves in this world by the practical quality of life that occurs in anyone who will simply obey Jesus' words. Our very lives become a testimony to the truthfulness of God's word. I say praise the Lord for that. Now notice in verse 32, Jesus further declared that just simple, practical obedience to this word, to this truth, will set a person free. It leads us out of bondage, and it leads us into freedom. And I want you to notice, and this is very important, freedom, as Jesus speaks about it here, is a byproduct. You can't make it your aim. It is a byproduct of simple obedience to God's Word. In the passage, the freedom that he speaks of is passive. It isn't something that we work to produce. Obedience does all of the heavy lifting in, the, in this thing called, called freedom. As we just simply obey God's word, freedom happens. It happens as a result of the obedience. And each and every act of obedience to God's word leads me into a greater practical freedom in my life. And the freedom that I enjoy in my life as a Christian is directly proportional to the obedience of my life. Just simple obedience leads us into a life of freedom. As we obey, the freedom takes care of itself. And I want you to notice that the freedom that Jesus is talking about, the freedom that he's offering to mankind, he speaks of it in verse 34, verse 35, verse 36, is a freedom from the bondage of, of sin. Let me read it uh, to you there in um, verse 34. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. In verse 36, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He who commits, verse 34, sin is a slave of sin. Do you realize, is, is, from God's perspective, as, as he looks at things, when we sin, 
We are simply revealing ourselves to be a slave to that sin. It simply reveals that sin to be a master in our lives. Now you take a master-slave relationship, and in any master-slave relationship, the master is the one who is obeyed, and the slave is the person who does the obeying. That's the way that it works. And Jesus is saying that sin's mastery over my life is revealed by my obedience to it. Obedience to sin is a confession of bondage. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6. He said, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? So we, do, we are not, from the Bible's perspective, we, we are not sinners because we sin. The problem's worse than that. The Bible teaches we sin because we are sinners. And in and of ourselves, we cannot free ourselves from the bondage of sin. That, that nature, that bondage that comes all the way from Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden, we cannot, I cannot set myself free from the bondage of sin. I may be able to set myself free from a particular sin for a period of time. But I cannot set myself free from, from sin in general in my life. And so often we convince ourselves that we're free because we're able to set ourselves free from some particular sin for a period of time. The problem is, is if, you watch, if we watch our lives when we do that or you watch other lives when they do that, people tend to lay aside one sin only to have it replaced by another sin. So I uh, take and I uh, quit drinking. And so I lay aside that sin of drunkenness. But now I become a fornicator. So then I lay, lay aside the sin of fornication. But now I become a drug user. I lay aside then the addiction to, to drugs. And then now I become covetous. There's nothing I see with my eyes that I don't want to buy and do buy until I'm up to debt to my eyeballs. And it's just a sin shuffle where there's the illusion that we're free because we can give up one sin, but we turn right around and we put ourselves into bondage to another sin because we're born sinners and we're born in bondage to sin. We never... We just simply move, as I said, from one sin to the other. Think that we're making progress, but we never get free of sin. No freedom, true freedom, something worthy of being called freedom. No freedom which takes a person into greater bondage has the right to be called freedom. True freedom isn't a freedom to sin. That is a, we think we're free because... I have the freedom to engage in this sin in this culture by the laws of the land and, and I have the freedom to do this if I want and I have the freedom to do that if I want. And so this is viewed, freedom is viewed in a very shallow, pathetic way in the culture. I think I'm free because I have the freedom to addict myself to this thing or to that thing or to this sin or to that sin. That's not freedom at all. 
That's how many people view freedom, though. And they think they're free because our culture allows them the freedom to choose what sin they're going to make themselves slaves to. Well, Jesus has something better in mind. And that's why he tells us in verse 36 that he will make us free indeed. He will give us a freedom from sin. Not the freedom to continue with great frustration, the sin shuffle from one sin to the next to the next. How does he do it? How does he do it? Surely, I mean, you've got to climb the Himalayas. Himalayas. Surely you've got to crawl on glass for two miles and up steps that go for a quarter of a mile. Surely it's some very hard, difficult thing that accesses us into this freedom. It's really not. Verse 35, he changes us or he takes us into that, this freedom by changing us from a slave to sin into a child of God, a son of God. And it happens just through simple faith, trusting in him is my Savior and is my Lord. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when a person puts their faith in Jesus as their Savior, we're not only forgiven, but we become a part of a family. We become sons and daughters of the true and the living God. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives. And He makes us into new creations. And He brings into our lives things that were never a part of our lives until He brought them in. And that's why a person can think, I'll never be free of this. I'll never be free of this. I've tried. You have no idea how I've tried. And they come and they think of Christianity as, all right, now I'm going to become a part of our church, of a church, and now I'm going to have to fight this sin that dominates my life with the same feeble resources that I've always fought it with. But that's not what it is. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He brings with Him things we have never had before to lead us into a life of freedom. He gives us new desires. Desires that you take the desire that you have for any sin that has you in bondage and the Holy Spirit brings an even greater desire into our lives to live for God, to love Christ, to obey His Word. And it's stronger and it's greater than even the greatest drive for sin in any of our lives. And the Holy Spirit brings it into our lives when he comes in and he gives us a power over sin that we never had before sin continues its pull in our lives it's like gravity it wants to pull us down and it will until one day we're in the glory of heaven 
But the Holy Spirit provides us with a power that is greater than the pull of gravity or the pull of sin. It's like you see the jets take off at at an uh, airport. And they take off in defiance of the laws of gravity. And the reason that they're able to do that is there's a greater law now on that plane. In the form of that fuel and in the form of those jet engines that allows it to defy the, the laws of gravity. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He gives us a greater fuel. He gives us greater engines to defy these, these pulls of sin in, in our lives. They don't go away, but we're able to, to move against them, and readily so. And there are no fuel surcharges. You don't have to pay for it. You say, boy, Lord, you know, gravity's feeling a pretty good pull. The sin's got a pretty good pull on me right now. All I have to, I don't have to pull out a checkbook or anything. I just have to stop anywhere in a hallway, driving the car on my knees at home or whatever, and just say, Lord, would you give me a greater measure of your Holy Spirit right now? Would you give me great, freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit, and it's free, and he does it. Now the ability to fly against the pull of sin in our lives. Jesus' offer of freedom, interestingly enough, I mean, you think the line would form, especially by religious people, but it doesn't. You notice in verse 33, Jesus' offer of freedom is immediately met with an objection by the Pharisees. And they are offended and they are angered by the fact that Jesus declared them not to be free but to be slaves. And they declared there that they, we are the descendants of Abraham and we've never been in, the bond, in bondage to anyone. I would contend that you cannot find in the entirety of the Bible a statement that is more chock-full of self-denial than that. We are the descendants of Abraham and we have never been in bondage in bondage to anyone. What about the Persians? What about the Assyrians? What about the Medes? What about the Babylonians? What about the Greeks? What about Rome now who was in the land there? And I mean Jerusalem, the entirety of Israel filled with Roman soldiers. The confession that Israel is under bondage to Rome is an evidence that they, they really fought against was they had to pay taxes to Rome. The evidence of their bondage is all around them. And yet they say, we've never been in, in bondage. I think it's interesting, and I think the reason that their response is recorded here in the Scriptures is because their response to Jesus is characteristic of many who are confronted with the Bible's teaching that every single one of us are sinners, and every single one of us is a slave to sin. And very often when a person hears that assessment by God, they respond just the way that these people did. It offends them and it makes them angry. And then like these religious leaders, they take and they deny the truth of God's assessment of them. 
But what does, what was the only way these religious leaders could deny the truthfulness of Jesus' assessment? Number one, by ignoring their long history of bondage. By ignoring their history. And by ignoring, number two, the current evidence of their bondage all around them. And in the same way, when someone comes to God and they hear God's assessment that they are a sinner and they are in bondage to sin, the Lord, all he does is say, look at your life. Look at your history. It's filled with bondage to sin. And look at the evidence of bondage to sin that is all around you in your current life. They denied Jesus' assessment in the face of a mountain of evidence. And I think that to deny that I'm a sinner and unable to break a lifetime of bondage to sin, to drink and to lust and to greed and pride and selfishness and a thousand other sins is to deny my entire history, a history that's very well known to God, and, and God knows it. But I think that there are a lot of other people, though, who listen to what Jesus has to say here about being set free. And don't have a complaint at all. They don't protest. They don't squawk. They don't defend themselves. They certainly don't head into self-denial. They listen to Jesus' teaching, and it makes perfect sense to them the context of their own life, and as they look at everybody else that they share this big, wide world with. That kind of person hasn't come to Jesus yet because they have never, ever thought freedom through in the way that Jesus has. We've been raised to think of true freedom as being able to do whatever I want whenever I want. That's our definition of freedom. It's a pathetic definition. And you watch it played out in the lives of movie stars and musicians and singers and entertainers and all of these people that are the poster children of freedom in our culture. And then you watch it as it's played out and you realize they're not free at all. They're simply slaves. And the next thing you do is you read in the newspaper or you see on the news that they're checking into some kind of a clinic to get over their alcoholism or their drug addiction. And now the big thing is sexual addiction. And our society's idea of freedom is very, very sad and very, very negligent. That's not freedom. Freedom is the ability to know what is right and what is wrong, and then the God-given ability to be able to choose what is right and then to walk out into that life. And maybe this morning there would be one or two of us where you look at it and you say, that makes some sense to me. 
The light goes on for you. It's just you've never heard it before. No fighting him, no going against him. You realize, all right, I need freedom. And I see where Jesus' truth sets a person free. And to that person, and indeed to the whole world, Jesus restates his offer in verse 36. He said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free, and a key word, indeed. Not the way the world defines freedom, but the way that heaven defines freedom. And it's good for you. It's good for God, because it brings Him glory. But it's good for you. God loves you. God created you. God has followed you around every day since you've been born. And He knew about you before that. And He wants you to come into freedom. But He wants you to come into real freedom. So how do I do that? It just begins with faith. Putting my trust in Jesus as my Savior this morning. And then having done that, trusting in His death upon the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, and then having done that to take this great book called the Bible and to make it the single greatest influence in my life. And then to obey that word as we come to know it And that simple obedience will just lead us out into a life of freedom. And it works for everyone. And it works for anyone. Anywhere in the world. In any human circumstance. There is no one that Jesus cannot set free. And it's all there for the asking and for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll pray.